Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Ben Jackson, in for one more week for Alyssa Milano, who's working out of the country. The end of the Supreme Court term brought several monumental decisions. We've extensively covered the court and these issues over the years, and we wanted to take this opportunity to revisit those episodes to put these decisions and efforts to reform the court into context. Breaking news in Washington, D.C. In the past few hours, the Supreme Court has ruled on two major rulings. The first allows certain businesses to refuse service to LGBTQ plus people. Now, the court also ruled against President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Judge Thomas and his wife set off on a nine-day island hopping tour on this super yacht, which comes complete with a staff and a private chef. ProPublica did the math and calculated that had Justice Thomas paid for the trip himself, it would have cost him more than $500,000. Another Supreme Court justice is under scrutiny. A new report from ProPublica claims Samuel Alito accepted a lavish vacation from a conservative billionaire with frequent business before the high court. A new study by four law professors estimates that Republicans are likely to keep control of the court for another 42 years until 2065 unless the court is expanded and rebalanced. Surprisingly, not all of the decisions from this court went against our interests. Two cases, one involving gerrymandered voting districts in Alabama, and another which considered a dangerous election manipulation attempt called the independent state legislature theory, were decided appropriately. To explain what was at stake, Megan Hatcher-Mays of Demand Justice joined the podcast. I want to talk about that particular case that's on the docket this term, which is more of Harper, which deals with basically election oversight, right? Which is just horrifying. First of all, just give my audience a bit of background on the case. This one is really scary. A case before the Supreme Court, Moore v. Harper could radically reshape presidential and congressional elections in this country. At the heart of the case is a controversial and disputed legal theory that claims the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures almost unchecked power over how federal elections are run. This is the thing, I think, one of the many cases that keeps me up at night. It's called Morvey Harper, like you said. What's at issue in this case is a legal theory called the independent state legislature theory. Some people call it the independent state legislature doctrine. I do not call it that because it's not a doctrine. It is a theory and it's fake and it's made up. But basically what this theory says is the only body of people in a state who has any say over how an election is administered is the state legislature. Only the state legislature can decide. This theory holds that state courts, and possibly not even the governor, have the authority, state courts do not have the authority to overturn voting laws or election laws that are passed by the state legislature, even if those election laws blatantly violate the state's constitution. They could be as off-the-wall unconstitutional as you want. If the state legislature passes it, it's fine. There can be no 
court oversight at the state level over whether or not the law is constitutionally valid. And in some cases, the state legislature could revoke the governor's ability to veto unconstitutional election or voting laws. So just break that down, like the potential impacts of that decision for people and their personal lives. What does it mean? It could very easily mean that your state legislature can decide who wins the election in your state, whether your state votes for that person or not. And this is very scary because the majority of state legislatures are controlled by Republicans. Of course, not every Republican is a MAGA GOP, I guess. I think most of them at least are fine with it, even if they're not blatantly MAGA. But there are a lot of state legislatures who are run by extreme MAGA Republicans. So think of a state like Arizona or Georgia or Texas or wherever, where they have super majorities in the state legislature. The state legislature could give themselves the power to completely overturn a statewide election if they don't like the results. And no state court could weigh in on whether or not that was unconstitutional. It could be the case that a governor in a situation couldn't do anything about it either. So if the Supreme Court adopts this theory as legitimate, it would cause havoc in federal elections across the country. So it affects not just elections, by the way, it affects congressional maps, which are already pretty terribly gerrymandered. It affects state legislative map. It will do severe damage to our elections, to election outcomes, to the public's faith that election outcomes are legitimate and valid. For those who are paying attention to that fake elector thing where Trump's lawyers were trying to get state officials in in a handful of states to create a second slate of electors to send to Congress to create a dispute between the legitimate slate of electors and the fake electors, you could find yourself in a situation, if the Supreme Court does adopt this theory, the independent state legislature theory, where the fake electors would be adopted, sent to Congress, and even if your state goes for Biden, say, in 2024, your state legislature could hand the state's electors to Trump instead. We know for a fact that in different situations, in different contexts, four of the Supreme Court justices have expressed support for this idea. So they only need one more to go along with it for it to be adopted. And based on the partisan rulings from this Supreme Court, how do you think it's going to go? It's hard to predict. My heart tends to always assume the worst when it comes to this. And every case that they've ruled on that has related to our democracy, always, with this constellation of justices, has always gone in favor of Republicans. So if it's like a badly drawn congressional map, they'll strike it down if it favors Democrats, but keep it if it favors Republicans. It's very kind of obvious. But this theory is so wild. It's unnecessarily wild. Republicans already have a lot of power. um, And this feels like possibly a step too far that it's hard to say that Republican justices would go along with it. I don't want to give them too much credit, though. But here's what I will say. As much as I dislike all of the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, like on a visceral level, they are acutely aware of their reputations and they are Like I said, this is the least popular Supreme Court in history.
there's another case called Milligan. That one's out of Alabama. That one's about congressional maps. I just referenced it. Basically, again, the state drew pretty blatantly unconstitutional maps that diluted the political power of Black people in the state of Alabama. There should be, based on the demographics of that state, there should be at least two majority Black congressional districts in that state. And there's only one because they diluted the political power of voters in that state. Even Trump judges at the lower court level said, you guys, you have to redraw these maps. And the Supreme Court, without even hearing a briefing on the case, reached past the lower court and said, nope, no, you don't. It's too close to the election to redraw the maps. We'll eventually hear a case on this later. But for now, these maps have to stand. This was decided back in January. And that was the farthest away, I think, that the court had ever said it was too close to an election to make changes. So it was 10 months away. There was plenty of time to redraw them is what I'm saying. So that case is pending. There was, speaking of Katanji Brown-Jackson, she was great during oral arguments on that case. She was talking about the need for race-conscious decisions. That's why we have the 14th and 15th Amendments. They were very specifically adopted to protect the political power of Black people and people of color in this country. So she's just been a really fabulous addition to the Supreme Court. And then, of course, cases went against the best interests of the people, with potentially devastating consequences. Megan Hatcher Mays also discussed cases which gutted affirmative action and allowed for discrimination of LGBTQ people. There's two more that stick out in my mind. One is about affirmative action, uh, race-conscious admissions in higher education that's very likely to be struck down. It's two different cases. One is from UNC, North Carolina, and the other is at Harvard. Basically, very likely that the Supreme Court will prohibit the use of race-conscious admissions in higher education, which will be devastating for applicants of color. The last one is, not the last one, there's a bunch of cases pending, but the last one I think is probably the scariest is this case about a web designer who does not want to have to make websites for gay people. A Colorado-based web designer is suing the state because she doesn't want to put together wedding services for same-sex couples. Now, it is unclear if a same-sex couple ever actually asked for her assistance. Either way, the U.S. Supreme Court is listening to her claims, at least as far as they apply to the issue of free speech. No gay person has asked this web designer to make a website for them, but he wants to. <laughs> he wants the Supreme Court to jump in and say, you don't have to provide services to people if you have a a religious objection to their quote-unquote lifestyle. So this is kind of a continuation of some of the gay marriage bakery cases, but it could very well result in a ruling that says that you can discriminate against people, any type of person you want. It's unfathomable to me that our country has slipped so far. And I do want to say that I'm so grateful to you and the coalition that you work with called Unrig the Courts. Please tell us what you do. Tell us how we can help. Yeah, so it is really exhausting. But this is one of those issues where, despite the fact that the hill we're trying to climb is like the steepest hill in the world, it's the Mount Everest of issues, In a final crushing decision, the Supreme Court killed President Biden's effort to forgive up to $20,000 of student debt for many borrowers. Natalia Abrams of Student Debt Crisis set the scope of the problem for us in an episode recorded before President Biden even took office. I want to 
start by actually talking about the impact of the student debt crisis. Well, first of all, like, why is this considered a crisis? Let's talk about that first. Yeah, and that's a great question because I think before we came on and called our organization student debt crisis, it was a debated topic. You were seen as being hyperbolic by using that term. But when we have 45 million student loan borrowers holding 1.5 trillion in debt, if that's not a crisis, I don't know what is. Paint the picture for me, the the micro and the macro of, of exactly what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, on a micro level, people are holding 35000 on average of student loan debt, but they're really holding 50000 100000 plus in student loan debt. They have less than $1,000 in their bank account. They're struggling to make $400 to $1,000 monthly student loan payments on top of rent and healthcare and everything else. You know, that's also a crisis. And... That's, you know, what the daily life is. And these are people that went to school to better their lives. Whether they completed or not, they got extra education after high school and they expected to just be, you know, solvent, not, you know, struggling every single day. So I think that's the life of a majority of student loan borrowers. And then on a macro effect, we're not seeing homes being sold in the same way. We're not seeing consumer goods being purchased in the same way. So it's definitely a drain on our overall economy. Not to mention a brain drain going on within rural communities who are, you know, finding themselves in no jobs. They're leaving their communities because they can't make that type of money. We're seeing this just impacts everyone. Men, women, we know women actually more than men. (laughs) And what's the percentage of people that actually are able to, because this is the thing that I've been thinking about a lot, that are able to go to college, get an education, get a degree, and then come out and can't get a job. Well, I think right now we, you know, the person currently in charge of our country would claim that we're at the lowest unemployment ever. And so I think the problem is not necessarily unemployment, it's underemployment. So people have jobs when they graduate from college. It's just, I've said before, they didn't necessarily major in whatever they majored in to get a job at Starbucks. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but that's not why they went to school. Right. So we have a bunch, you know, I don't know the percentage. I, my guess is it's somewhere around 20% or higher of underemployed. And how much does it cost to go to college? So it depends. If you're going to UCLA, we're here in Los Angeles, California, and that's going to cost you about 14000 just for tuition. We're not talking about room and board. If you're going to a private school, you're going to start at 30000 and go to 60000 But for the state schools, if you think, let's say, you know, 20000 a year on average, that's a lot of freaking money. That's $80,000 for four years. I don't know any family mm-hmm. that has saved that up that are using these loans and accessing. We're seeing this, you know, definitely impacting the middle class and working class families the most. And it seems like all of these costs are going up, not going down. They've gone up a thousand percent since we started the program. Since the late 70s, the cost of college has risen over a thousand percent. To be able to get a job, to actually have to pay off something that, like you said, is, is bettering themselves is, it just doesn't seem like it's, it's a formula for success. No, we have a disconnect too in this country, unfortunately, in generational issues that, you know, our, my parents, I'm in my mid to late thirties. Um, my parents were able to go to school, work up. My mom was able to go to school, work a part-time job, pay off her schooling in a couple of years. 
And so there's a disconnect when we have a lot of lawmakers saying, why don't you just get a part-time job and then you'll pay off your schooling? Again, when you're looking at these $15,000, $20,000 a year bill, you, a part-time job won't pay for that when people are making under $15 an hour. I don't know how people make ends meet. And then if you put, I mean, of course, people are waiting longer to have children, right? I mean, because you look at it and you say, well, how could I ever start a family yep. when uh, I'm still trying to pay off? Let's say someone goes to a four-year college. How much debt are they acquiring after four years? So the average is thirty-seven thousand. And a first job pays normally what twenty-five thousand dollars. Twenty-five to thirty thousand. You know, we're seeing teachers that make which require a credential and extra training twenty-four thousand dollars a year in some states, with hardly any benefits, fighting for more. It's not set up to work anymore. It's a failed system. I mean, this not college, but the the system of lending, the system of lending right. for college. I've gotten to that point over eight years or nine years of doing this. That you know, at first I wanted to work on more middle of the road solutions. I feel that that's still important to stop the bleeding in the moment for people. But mm -hmm. ultimately, we have to scrap this system. We need to have free college and get rid of the debt. Um, and do a major restart because it's just, it's impossible where it's bogus on the balance sheet that money people owe right now. So how did we get here? I mean, you said it's really from the seventies. Well, that's when we started. Lyndon Johnson started the student loan system in the way we know it with the Higher Education Act. This is a proud moment in my life. For the individual, Education is the path to achievement and fulfillment. And for the nation, it is a path to society that is not only free but civilized. And for the world, it is the path to peace. For it is education that places reason over force. Uh, Little Fats Student Loans actually started under Eisenhower to battle the Cold War to increase like STEM, what we know today is STEM majors of math, science, engineering. So that was the beginning of student loans, but the mm -hmm. Higher Education Act under Johnson was to expand so more people were able to go to college. It was a good thing at the time. And it wasn't burdening people with $40,000 in debt. And it was allowing more than just the elite and wealthy to go to school. And then we saw, you know, just like a lot of programs that don't get underfunded and not taken care of during uh, the Reagan years, there was a big pull away and more privatization. And right. then the big impact is 2008 with the financial crisis. And that's where we th see things get completely out of control because so many state budgets were tied, at, like budget pensions were tied to the financial markets. And then when those collapsed and states got hurt, the first thing they cut is higher education because they can. It's mm -hmm. not as protected as K through 12 in terms of budgets. And we know that's not very protected either, right. but the very first thing is higher education and it gets slashed. I think in Alaska, we just saw it slash 90%. A slowdown in the economy shouldn't mean a downturn in educational opportunities. So we're taking decisive action now to ensure that college is accessible and affordable for students around the country. One way we're helping is through the Department of Education's Lender of Last Resort program which works to provide loans for students who are unable to secure one from a lender. The department is taking steps to ensure that the agencies involved in this program are ready and able to meet their responsibilities. If necessary, the government will help fund these loans. With these actions, we will help ensure that a college education is not unnecessarily denied to those who have earned it. These are important first steps, but more needs to be done. 
Congress needs to pass legislation that would give my administration greater authority to buy federal student loans. By doing so, we can ensure that lenders will continue to participate in the guaranteed loan program and ensure that students continue to have access to tuition assistance. So tell me how, how this impacts everyday Americans. They're not able to buy houses. They're not able to buy cars. They're, as you mentioned, they're not able to start families. I think it's confusing them and, you know, scaring them from other lending products as well. You know, I actually, I'm a homeowner. The lending from my home is much easier. I've also had some payment plans with the IRS. That's easier to deal with than the student lending industry. So I think daily they, there's like, we have 8 million people in default. Those people live in daily fear of calls from their servicers that Sally may not Wait, be. Wait, say in. that again? 8 million people? 8 million people in default. That means that they're not paying their loans and it means that their social security is being garnished, their, uh, employment, their credit, uh, employment is being garnished, um, their checks basically. And they, live in constant fear. They get calls sometimes up to 20 times a day from their loan servicers, bothering them, trying to find them. And we see those people actually jump from job to job. The moment that the, the loan servicer right. finds their job and they're attached a you know, garnishment on their paycheck, then they move on. <gasps> so it, it harms employers too. You know, of that's course. what people need to know. This harms people that don't have student loan debt. The ideological and ethical failures of the court demand reform. To discuss some of those efforts, Congressman Hank Johnson joined us for a special live episode. I recently learned something, Congressman, that I was shocked to find out. Um, Is it true that there is no code of ethics for Supreme Court justices? Yes, it is. It is true. And we've allowed it to happen. We've allowed the uh, United States Supreme Court to build an ivory tower around itself and deposit itself at the very top of the ivory tower, looking out at the rest of us. And uh, we've allowed them to go up there and stay up there and do whatever they want to do. And we can't really see what they're doing. And we expect them to do the right thing, but public reports, published reports uh, of late have proven or demonstrated that uh, they don't always do the right thing. They don't always put uh, this um, uh, notion of impartiality. Um, They don't always respect that with with their dealings. And so the U.S. Supreme Court is the only court in the nation that operates without a code of conduct. They have no code of conduct that governs their behavior. And and it's pretty much a every justice decides what their ethics will be. And uh, they go ahead and do whatever they want to do. And there's no accountability to the people for that, and there's no um, no accountability to the legal profession, which sanctions the conduct of lawyers and judges. Uh, there's no accountability that they have to any entity, not even to themselves. So each justice 
is the law, the judge and jury uh, to themselves. And, um, uh, and it's not working out very well uh, for the public at this point, because as Jane Mayer has, has shown or uh, revealed in her New Yorker exposés on uh, Jenny and Clarence Thomas, she has revealed a, a flow of money into the pocketbook of uh, Jenny Thomas, and it's, uh, it benefits the household. Her and Clarence Thomas have been married for three decades, over three decades, and so they've been doing this for a long time. The more right-wing he gets, the more money she gets mm. from right-wing interests um, who are paying her to advocate for them and uh, that advocacy shows up in Justice Thomas's rulings. And so uh, it, it is time now that the Supreme Court be brought under a code of ethics. And I have filed legislation in the House of Representatives. It's being carried in the Senate by uh, Senator Chris Murphy. And uh, if we can pass this legislation and get it signed into law, we can stop this misbehavior that has been exposed uh, by uh, reporters um, uh, throughout the country. So just to reiterate, there is nothing to stop conflicts of interest or other ethical problems from influencing their decisions, correct? That's correct. There's nothing, nothing except for their self Regulation. And are there any current remedies for justices who behave unethically? Well, the only remedy that uh, that Congress would have would be to impeach a justice for misbehavior. But that has never been done in the uh, well. Yeah, one. There's been one case of impeachment, but it ended without conviction. Uh, so there has never been a judge. Uh, throughout American history, who has been impeached, convicted, and removed by Congress from the bench. And uh, never uh, a Supreme Court justice, let me say that, who has been uh, impeached, convicted, and removed uh, by Congress. It's a high burden. You have to have uh, two-thirds uh, a vote in the Senate. And um, things have gotten so political now that, uh, you know, an impeachment against, let's say, Judge Clarence Thomas for uh, pretty much selling his office uh, to uh, right wing interests that pay his wife. Um, I mean, we couldn't get a two thirds vote in the in the Senate to uh, impeach him. So. You know, he's he's there with lifetime tenure and the other justices are not immune from uh, criticism either, Alyssa. I mean, they go to these Federalist Society um, junkets, get wined and dined, speak, give speeches and uh, then come back and rule uh, on a issue in accordance with their um, 
their philosophy or their briefs. Right. Just so uh, people understand at home what the Federalist Society does is they they start grooming uh, young people in law school um, of a, a, a right wing conservative ideology. Um, and they are, I don't remember, I don't know if anyone remembers, um, when, uh, Trump was in office and he nominated Kavanaugh, everyone was talking about this list. Well, the Federalist Society actually makes these lists. Um, and you know, they, they put these young people in with, uh, conservative judges throughout the, the country and they groom them to to a right wing ideology um so so it, to me and you know i don't know why we're not doing more about the federalist society because i think that they are just as dangerous as the nra there's no question about that they are a well-funded very uh wealthy dark money right dark moneyed um uh I pretty much call them a corporation. Yeah. They are a nonprofit corporation, but their mission is to, as you say, uh, cultivate and groom uh, future judges and justices. And so that dark money that funds their efforts also funds uh, the Republican Party and uh, their candidates and Mitch McConnell. Uh, they they are the ones that uh, are anti-consumer, right. they are anti-woman, they are anti-vote, they are anti-LGBTQ. They tee up these cases uh, and bring them before the courts, and they are the ones who select the judges. Right. And Donald Trump outsourced the selection of uh, his Supreme Court justices to the Federalist Society. So whoever they recommended is who he uh, appointed, and that's who was uh, uh, confirmed by the Senate. And that's what we have uh, in our Congress. And they're being led by the longest serving justice on the US Supreme Court, who is our friend, uh, Clarence Thomas. And every year, it seems like Clarence Thomas gets even more right wing to try to be out to try to out um, outdo uh, these younger bucks that are coming in mm. behind them, trying to show them up. And um, and so it has gotten to the point where the court is now controlled by this private corporation, the Federalist Society. It's it's it was shaped and made into their image. And now it's ruling against us in all of these ways. It's ruling against women. It's getting ready to curtail or if not eliminate a woman's right over her own body to choose, uh, you know, when to proceed with a pregnancy. They're passing all kinds of state laws that are going to the Supreme Court now. They're being teed up and we know which way they're going to rule. Mm -hmm. Voter voter rights is the same thing. they decimated uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. This is all to keep uh, people of color from voting. They want Republicans to be able to be in control of the levers of power in America. Right-wing, conservative, 
um, anti or corporate uh, personhood uh, believing uh, um, ideologues uh, on, in both the legislature, in the executive branch as president, and uh, on the judicial side. And it's, it's, it's something that we're going to have to uh, deal with. And I've got other legislation that would enable us to expand the size of the United States Supreme Court from nine justices to 13 justices. And in that way, uh, we could uh, temper the, um, the dramatic change that has uh, come to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, it, it's something we've got to deal with. The gutting of the judiciary and the ideological extremism of this court is the result of a decades-long effort of the right. Tamara Brummer of Demand Justice lays out some of that history and how we should be responding. Will you talk to us about what the judiciary is supposed to look like? Mm, what it's supposed to look like. One would argue that the judiciary should be reflective of the American people and the people who make our country go. But if you've ever looked at our federal judiciary, in particular, maybe our Supreme Court might be a better example for folks listening. Our Supreme Court doesn't really reflect visually what America looks like. It's overwhelmingly white, male, and older. No shade to older folks or white men or old men, but they are an overwhelming majority of our federal judiciary. And so when we think about who understands and interprets the law of the lands and our constitution and the rules, you're only getting a very limited purview of that interpretation, right? Or what the constitution means for all of us. And so our judiciary should look like you and me. It should look like women and women of color, people of color. But in 113 justices, for instance, of the Supreme Court, there's never been a Black woman. There's never been an Asian person. There's never been a Native American. So we've got a lot of work to do to get our courts to actually look like America. And why is that important? I think it's very important because if you think about our society and our ecosystem, you want to make sure, for instance, if you're a defendant going in front of a judge, what would it mean for you, Alyssa, if you went in front of a judge and your judge had never, I don't know, argued in front of a court before? Or if your judge only had experience defending corporations and oil companies? Or if your judge in their lawyer life, their past life, had only represented the federal government, but never just regular people? So making sure that we have a diverse judiciary, not just in terms of demographics, which is very important, right, but also in professional experience means that we have a more deeper, robust understanding of how our laws and our country work and operate. And I think that we've seen this recently in some of the hearings that we've had around already people going in front of the Senate judiciary around lower court nominations. White men are not asked any questions about <laughs> does being white or a man influence you being a judge? However, when it's Black women who've been asked, they've always been asked, will your race and your gender influence your decision as a judge? Those women have said no, and I believe them. But I think what we're really getting to is that you have a lived experience in the body that you have in this world and how you walk through the world. And that we want to have people who have had different lived experiences walking through this world, being able to interpret our laws and be able to give us equal justice under the law for all of us is really important when we are dealing with our federal judiciary. But right now, it's really tough, I think, for folks to get a fair shot and for us as Americans to get a fair shot for our democracy, to get a fair shot in the current structure of our government. 
Can you just break down for my listeners what happened during the Trump years? Oh, absolutely. I like to talk about it this way. Although Donald Trump was a one-term president, he was very successful in keeping his legacy alive throughout the federal judiciary. I don't know if folks know this, but during his tenure, him and Mitch McConnell were able to confirm over 200 federal judges. So that's 200 plus people who will have a lifetime appointment on the federal court. I mean, in the Supreme Court, he put three people (laughs) on the bench. And so we all talk a lot about Mitch McConnell and how we all understand how that man's still alive. But at the end of the day, he now has over 200 Mitch McConnellites who will carry on his legacy. So what really Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell and Republicans have been very crystal clear about doing and like laser focus is laying out the part of the federal government that they feel like they have the most control over. And that's the federal judiciary. They've been laser focused for multiple decades. And I think that now as Democrats and those of us on the left and as progressives, what we're realizing is, oh my goodness, this is something that we need to be concerned about as well. But we're catching up while Republicans and Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell have been laser focused for years. I feel like we're always a little reactionary instead of proactive, but especially in this case, because as you said, and I think it's important for the listeners to know and understand that this has been part of the plan for the GOP for decades. And we are seeing this plan come into fruition. And I would just love for you to remind everyone what McConnell did with Merrick Garland and Neil Gorsuch. Oh, absolutely. So when President Obama was in the last year of his term, he was like, I have an opportunity to put a Supreme Court justice on. We're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. But Mitch McConnell said, no. (laughs) He said, I'm not doing it. The next justice could fundamentally alter the direction of the Supreme Court and have a profound impact on our country. So of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. It is the president's constitutional right to nominate a Supreme Court justice, and it is the Senate's constitutional right to act as a check on a president and withhold its consent. What he did was totally legal. He decided that he was gonna make the rules up as he goes along, but he definitely said, I'm not gonna allow this president his rightful place of putting in a justice. I'm going to wait. So he waited almost 16 months There were 16 months between the passing of Scalia to the appointment of Gorsuch. We just totally forgot about that. And Mitch McConnell just decided to ram it through. And I think that's important for folks to understand about why the federal courts are so important to Republicans. People should remember, you probably remember, I remember, this was not popular with the American people. The American people said, you absolutely need to let President Obama appoint the next Supreme Court justice. The Republicans didn't care about what was popular. They cared about keeping power. And so the courts for them are their way of keeping a stronghold on our democracy and on keeping a stronghold on their power. And, you know, a conservative ideology that I think if 2020 was any reflection of where the American people are, it's that they are in favor of more progressive policy, obviously, with the turnout and how large of a number Biden won by. They saw what was going on and they voted against that. So the fact that Trump and McConnell and the GOP have all of these judges now in place. And by the way, I just want to remind everybody that McConnell also rushed through Amy Coney Barrett when 
a big majority of mail-in votes were already cast and ballots were cast. And to him, that was totally fine, even though the American people were like, wait a minute, you know what, maybe this isn't fair. Since people already voted, maybe you don't get to say, you know, since we're in the middle of an election, maybe you don't get to appoint someone now. And they did it anyway. So now we are in the situation. And not that that's to say that the courts were in great shape before Trump, but is there a drastic difference before and after Trump? I'm not a historian on that, but I would say just anecdotally, what we're seeing is a quicker decline in our democracy, like a chipping away. The Trump judges are the ones who have been fighting us on immigration. They've been fighting us on environmental justice. They're fighting us on reproductive justice. They're fighting us on labor rights. I'll give you another example. So John Roberts was appointed before Donald Trump, right? However, John Roberts has spent his whole professional career dismantling the Voting Rights Act. So he was able to do that in 2016. But here we are now in this new Trump era of judges, what he was able to dismantle, we are seeing it throughout this past election. The Supreme Court decided that during a global pandemic that people still need to go vote in person. That was a decision by this conservative bench. This same conservative bench is from the lower courts to the top have told us that it's okay to keep babies in cages. They're telling us that environmental issues, you can't really sue an oil company for doing something. We're talking about workers' rights. There's been a real chip away of that during this era. But I think the other thing that folks should really understand is like, just because Donald Trump is out of office, those judges will still remain. So the same way that we've seen all this wave of voter suppression laws happening at state levels, don't be surprised. If those get passed or they don't get passed, that the federal judges that Donald Trump appointed will have their say. They will get a say in what happens. In his first two and a half years in office, Donald Trump has struggled to get things done. Many of his plans have been blocked by the courts. He hasn't been able to build his wall or put a citizenship question on the census. But there is one thing Trump has done exceptionally well, remaking the federal judiciary. Since he's taken office, Trump has nominated 191 so-called Article III judges who are appointed for life. 144 of these nominees have been confirmed. That's over 50 more judges than Barack Obama had confirmed at this point in his presidency. So the difference I really would say is that we are doing amazing work on the ground. People worked so hard to win in 2020 from the top of the ticket to the bottom of the ticket for progressive ideas and policies. But the way that our courts are currently structured now, all of our fights could be for naught, right? If you think that a lower court judge could just erase all the good work we're doing because they don't interpret the law the way that we know that they could and that they should, that's the difference. I think that folks should think about in this post-Trump judicial world, What's the work that you're doing now? How will that court work to dismantle that work? And that's what they're all about. years ago, the right could not stop screaming, activist judges, right? Every time there was a nominee from President Obama or they lost in court, didn't they just spend four years stocking the court with activist judges? Yes, and four years before that, and four years before that, and four years before that. 
Finally, we revisit Megan Hatcher Mays, who tells us about the efforts to expand the court and why it is so vital that we achieve this goal. So it is really exhausting, but this is one of those issues where, despite the fact that the hill we're trying to climb is like the steepest hill in the world, it's like the Mount Everest of issues, it, there's no other option but to add seats to the Supreme Court. We have to expand the Supreme Court if we want to protect the rights that we've still got and restore the ones that we've lost. The only way to do that is to expand the court. So the coalition that we work with, the Unrigged the Courts Coalition, is singularly dedicated to getting a court expansion bill passed in Congress. Obviously, very difficult given the makeup of Congress at the moment. And obviously, things might become more complicated for us after the midterms, too. But there's a bill pending in Congress. It's called the Judiciary Act. It would add four seats to the Supreme Court. Right now, we're in a situation where the justices themselves are behaving like a threat to our democracy. They don't have to follow an ethics code. I really don't say that lightly. And I think like a lot of court expansion advocates, it's not like I'm a lawyer too. I think that the court system is should be sacred, but the way they're treating it isn't. And so they've really left us with no choice but to add seats to the Supreme Court. That's actually, all things considered, the smallest reform we could make given the threats that we're up against. So that's the goal. The goal is to add four seats to the Supreme Court. It's going to be difficult. What do you say to people who insist that the process is actually working as it's intended in like nominating and confirming justices and that changing the process is a power grab within itself? The power grab already happened. I really need people to understand that. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, but won't we get into a tit for tat? Republicans will do this if Democrats do this. It's like we're already there. We're already in it. We're already in the doom loop when it comes to the Supreme Court. Now, Justice Scalia died unexpectedly uh, in February 2016 at a ranch in Texas where he was on a hunting trip. Um, and of course, because he died in February 26, 2016, that means that Barack Obama was president. The Republicans had control of the Senate, but the Democratic president held the White House. Within one hour of the announcement of Justice Scalia's passing in February 2016, the Republican leader in the Senate, the majority leader, Senator McConnell, issued this statement. He said, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. They have spent 50 years trying to achieve this goal to take away abortion rights from people and to make life more difficult for other marginalized groups. And they're not going to stop. There's no oversight over what they do. There's no consequence. There's no political consequences for the stuff that they do. All we can do is protect the institution, protect ourselves by restoring some semblance of legitimacy to the court. And the best way to do that is to add four seats. It'll be hard, but it's a worthy fight. And is the Supreme Court the only level of federal courts which need to be reformed? No. Not every case ends up at the Supreme Court. A lot of cases are decided at the lower level, at the lower appellate level. And those courts have also been pretty well stacked with conservative slash Republican judges. Donald Trump successfully, with Mitch McConnell, successfully confirmed over 200 judges to the lower courts. That's a third of the entire judiciary. And there are some circuits that have no Democratic appointees on them at all. They're all Republican in those circuits. If you live in one of those circuits and you're seeking justice for a harm that was done to you, very unlikely that you'll succeed if you're going up in front of a Trump judge who has his marching orders from conservative dark money interests who 
are laser focused on overturning Roe and gutting the Voting Rights Act and all of those things. So how can my listeners support your work? The best thing to do is go to indivisible.org. You can find a group to join as we kind of go through the rest of the year and into next year. We're going to be trying to maximize as much advocacy as we can do while we have the chance. The courts are going to continue to be a problem. And this is really an issue that should become central, I think, to all of the decisions that we make about who we vote for in the future, who we vote for in 2024. We can no longer just let Republicans decide what happens to the courts. Above all, it is public service. We entrust judges with administering equal justice under the law. It is critical to our democracy that the American people have confidence that judges cannot be bought or influenced, and that they are serving the public interest, not their own personal interest. Over the course of several decades, Congress and the judicial branch have created a system of ethics laws and standards for federal judges that lay out the clear rules of the road. These rules promote transparency and disclosure. They place guardrails on conflicts of interest, provide mechanisms for investigation and enforcement, and ensure accountability for misconduct. They strengthen faith in the fairness of the courts and the judges who serve on them. We are here today because the Supreme Court of the United States of America does not consider itself bound by these rules. The Supreme Court is supposed to be apolitical. Instead, it has been manipulated into an extremely political body that is not representative of the people by right-wing ideologues. In fact, to show you how broken the system is, all you need to do is look at the popular votes for the last generation. Since 1992, more than 30 years ago, the Republican Party has only won the popular vote one time in a presidential election. And yet, they have been able to gain an overwhelming right-wing majority of the highest court of the land. This cannot be how our nation is governed. It's anti-democratic and it's illegitimate. Maintaining the presidency in 2024 in order to have a chance to reverse this trend has never been more important. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.